0: Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Listeners, as Courtney explained last week, we haven't been able to get together to do our usual festive episode this year. Obviously, you had a festive episode from her last week. I thought that as this episode is going to be going out on New Year's Eve, I would find a story about New Year's Eve. So, this is Mrs. Ranford's New Year's Dinner. This is by William Howitt. It was published in Household Words, Volume 2, Magazine Number 41, on the 4th of January, 1851 by way of preface to this story i feel like two things should be mentioned the first is that william howitt and his wife mary are very known for their very moralizing style i think this story has its charms but it is both predictable and i feel like with victorian christmas stories you either get religious overtones or ghosts and this is in the former category So then there's something to know going in. Um, You will guess the ending within the first 20 minutes. It's fine. It's fun. It makes it a good story. And also, I was in some kind of silly, goofy mood when I was recording this, so sometimes you might hear me laughing to myself. Hopefully that enhances your experience. So without further ado, this is Mrs. Ranford's New Year's Dinner. It was Christmas morning. Winter had set in with December and snow had been lying on the ground for most of the month. The whole country lay white and quiet. The sun rose this morning in a cloudless sky and made promise of a splendid day. The gladsome bells were heard ringing out from distant villages. There was a murmur of music in the air which called forth a respondent music in the heart. The roads were beaten hard, yet untouched by any sullying thaw, were almost as dazzlingly pure as the fields around through the clear keen air went long lines of wild fowl seeking yet unfrozen streams in this pinching time the very rooks tamed by severity came into the gardens and appealed to the compassion of man as the morning advanced a fresh peal of bells from the different churches called forth multitudes of people wrapped in overcoat and cloak with warm gloves and furs and muffs and there were happy families of old and young nodding to other families and exchanging the old congratulations a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Soon the pealing bells rose in their kindling energy to a perfect sough and jubilance of sound, then sinking in tremulous cadence, suddenly ceased, and the congregations of the people found themselves face to face with each other and with God. In two churches in Lincolnshire sat two men, each thinking of the other, each known to the world as the other's bitter enemy, each regarding the other as the most vindictive and dishonest of men. These men did not live in the same town. The one sat in his parish church in Wainfleet, the other beneath that noble tower so oddly termed Boston stump. He who sat in Boston was a ruined man. He who sat in Wenfleet had ruined him. The one had been prosperous and happy, and might have said, with many such a man before him, "'What can move me?' But all this had been changed as by witchcraft." the man of Wainfleet had dragged him down in a long and desperate struggle. The happiness of his home had been destroyed. His good name stained as by the inky waters of Erebus, his friends, all those vast friends, estranged from him. They regarded him as a base and unfeeling hypocrite. Thus sat the man listening to the words of the collect, Almighty God, who hast given us thy only begotten son, to take our nature upon him, and at this time to be born, of a pure virgin, grants that we, being regenerate, and made thy children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by thy Holy Spirit, through the same our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the same Spirit, ever one God, world without end, Amen. There was a solemn murmur of Amen, Amen, and the man also uttered the Amen with his lips, but it was not in his heart. On that heart sat the sense of hugest injuries, and burned the bitterness of intensest resentment. Wherever he looked he saw only faces which wore the meek air of devotion. Yet those people had done him the foulest wrong, had refused to listen to his most earnest pleadings, had combined with his foes to dishonour and ruin him. Long years of integrity had not weighed one straw in the balance with them against the artful assertions of his foes.' These things rankled in his soul like fire. He saw those who had eaten at his table, laughed by his fireside, and in his social hours seen his heart laid bare in its generous truthfulness. Some of these quondam friends occupied his ancient family pew. He himself sat in a humble and distant nook, half hidden by one of the ponderous pillars of the side aisle. His wife lay at home the victim of a wearing sickness, but his only daughter sat beside him and wept silently to herself. The ghosts of old times passed in long trains through her mind, and the words of the hymn. The ghosts of old times passed in long trains through her mind, and the words of the hymn, Goodwill to sinful man is shown and a peace on earth is given, perhaps reminded her how little goodwill had been shown to them. How little peace they found on this earth. When, therefore, the clergyman took his text, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall thy brother sin against me, and I forgive him, till seven times, Jesus said unto him. When, therefore, the clergyman took his text, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him, till seven times, Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. The tears of the daughter fell faster and she cast a gentle look at her father, as if imploring him to listen to that. But on the brow of Mr Longmore, for that was his name, there sat a stern, hard expression, and he said to himself, I have no brother, there is no such thing. Do I not know them? But the clergyman's voice was now softly and impressively calling on the congregation to remember the new and godlike era which had commenced with the first Christmas day. How the old and terrible doctrines of vengeance and blood had been thrown down from their woeful reign of ages. How the spirit of an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, had been superseded by the spirit of love. How the angelic anthem of peace on earth and goodwill amongst men had been worked out with a divine reality by the Son of God. And over the earth had gone a breath of heaven destined to cherish peace and kindness, art and science and literature, pregnant with triumphs, not of blood but of magnanimity, not of strong men over one another, but of souls over their evil passions, every succeeding age assimilating this earth more and more to the dignity and felicity of the heaven there revealed. Longwood shook his head and said inwardly, Bah, mere vision. After eighteen hundred years, where are the proofs? Have I not seen it? Do I not know? Oh sycophants, sycophants! But his attention was again arrested by his daughter, softly laying her hand on his arm. He listened. The preacher was describing the career of Christ. How after all his deeds of goodness and his life of love, his friends had all deserted him in the evil hour, and his foes had insulted and slain him. And Jesus lifted up his eyes to the heaven on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, they know it very well, said Longmore in a desperate mood. They must know it. The base wretches are always the same. Forgive them? No, I cannot forgive them. Christ might do it. He was a divine being. It is easy to God, but it is not easy. It is not possible for me. I am but a poor, weak, downtrodden worm. No, no. The tears of his daughter flowed faster as she stooped low and buried her face in her handkerchief. It seemed as if she felt the spirit that was raging in her father's bosom. But meantime, what were the thoughts of the man of Waynefleet? Of the lawyer who had so triumphantly conducted the cause of his client, and had so completely dragged down his usurper Longmore, as he firmly believed him, from his proud attitude to the dust of retribution and of shame. <sighs> On the last Christmas day he had sat there in the very flush of triumph, and had thanked God that he was not such as Longmore, that he was not like him, "'a convicted knave still less like him a pauper "'with the memory of such past greatness. "'But Broadhurst, the lawyer, did not sit thus now. "'He was a crestfallen, spirit-fallen man. "'A dreadful discovery had come upon him. "'He had ruined one more upright and noble-minded than himself "'to elevate a worthless pretender. "'He had blasted a well-deserved name, "'had struck the dagger of domestic misery "'into three kindred hearts.' had done that which he would, if possible, give worlds to undo. He sat and wept as the doctrine of heaven's highest philosophy, do unto others as thou wouldst that they should do unto thee, was preached over his head. O Lord, forgive me my heavy sins. Grant me life and strength to repair what I have ruined. Touch the heart of that injured man and turn it to forgiveness. For all things are in thy power, and it is thy doctrine and that thy law thus ran his words in the inward tears of his soul and to every sentiment of love and blessed retribution his amen amen went up like the flames of a heart on fire what then had taken place between these men but two years ago long was a wealthy wool merchant of boston he had led a pleasant and jolly life his business had grown immensely His premises were large, his connections both at home and abroad extensive and such was his reputation for integrity and capital that he commanded the market over a vast district. He was a tall, large, florid man of a peculiarly open and cordial character. He was liberal in his ideas and the leading man in the politics and social movements of his neighbourhood. His family consisted only of his wife, a quiet, pleasant woman and a fair, blue-eyed girl, his daughter kept a noble table and delighted to have his friends about him at that time he thought of his friends as plenty as blackberries and laughed at the croakings of those moral philosophers who had for ages promulgated a different idea he dubbed them bookworms and said they did not know life when he went round the country to buy up the farmer's wool his progress was a regular course of feasting and merriment they all knew of his coming and assembled their neighbors for a blithe evening. Thus, Lombard made his annual rounds, dispatching an extraordinary amount of business amid the overflowing hospitalities of farmhouses, granges, and halls. His doctrine of the prolific growth of friendship, spite of the libellous calculations of bookworms, received a grand confirmation when he was about five and forty, in the bequest of a fine estate in Northamptonshire. It was the result of an acquaintance accidentally made abroad. It owed everything to friendship nothing to consanguinity from that time until a few years turned 50 longmore had chiefly resided on this estate it was a beautiful place the house stood in a fine country and a fine park his business was conducted by an old faithful servant it seemed as if fortune was resolved that longmore should go down to his grave in his very charitable views of human nature but about three years before the time we saw longmore at his christmas morning devotions the scene changed there sprung up a man, a butcher of Gainsborough, who claimed to be the true heir to the Northamptonshire estate, and, after some faint rumours which rose and died away again, Mr Longmore was astonished and a good deal disconcerted by the receipt of a letter from an eminent solicitor of Wainfleet, calling upon him, in the name of his client, Mr Filmer, to restore to him the estate of his late relative, Mr John Churton. Mr Longmore, who with all his pleasant and sunny humour, was a peculiarly sensitive and impulsive man, read this letter, uttered his indignation in no gentle terms, and knowing that he derived his claim from his friend Churton's honest will, made in his most florid health, bade the lawyer do his worst. The worst was done. We will not travel minutely through all three years of angry expaspirations. Mr Longmore's character was high, that of his adversary, Filmer, just the reverse. We may therefore imagine Longmore's astonishment when the active lawyer Broadhurst of Wainfleet asserted, through the ablest counsel that Longmore had taken advantage of the decayed intellects of the late Mr Churton to concoct a will to his own advantage. We may imagine how this astonishment rose when the housekeeper of Mr Churton, whom Longmore had himself rendered independent by voluntarily doubling the annuity left to her by her master, was brought forward to attest the weakness of the testator's faculties and that Longmore had carefully excluded from the sickbed of Mr every everyone but his own family, and that the dying man had been upheld by Brandy to enable him to put his signature to the deed. So well had brought laid his lady's mind that Longmore found himself blown, as it were, at once into the air. So well had the pleader described the wrong done to the poor and oppressed heir, whom he painted as a most observing person, and so astounding was the evidence of the housekeeper, that a verdict was at once given in favour of the plaintiff. Longmore was at first struck dumb and senseless as by a stupefying shock. The impetuosity of his temper, which, during the long smooth course of his life, had only manifested itself in generous and hasty outbursts of feelings, now very soon assumed the fury of a tornado. His indignation against what he termed and deemed the villainy of the lawyer and the black ingratitude of the housekeeper was too tremendous to find its way out all at once but it came by degrees into action that seemed resolved to tear down everything between him and his vengeance on the plotters against him. He rushed into the contest with a vehemence which alarmed his family and friends and gave the most decided advantage to his watchful opponents. Trial after trial came off, the most eminent counsel were retained at the most stupendous cost, and for some time public opinion was pretty equally divided on the merits of the case. But before the next year was at an end, Longmore beheld with inexpressible amazement and with feelings of indescribable irritation, his enemies rapidly turning the scale against him, his friends growing mysteriously cool, and his capital exhausted by the gigantic contest. At the end of that period he found himself standing alone, regarded as the convicted usurper of another's rights, and his former high character only remembered to point the public astonishment at the real baseness it was supposed to have concealed. His estate was absolutely lost, he was called on to refund long arrears of income, while the prodigal expenditure in law had left him unable to comply with these demands. In proportion to his former affluence was now the rapacity of his creditors. He saw himself gibbeted in the gazette, and the wreck of his property torn to shreds in the hands of his legal executioners. What a Christmas day was that which passed soon after this extraordinary change in his fortunes. Instead of the and rich banqueting at Longmoor Park with many friends around him, with laughter and rejoicing beneath a large kissing bush in the servant's hall, the brilliant dance in the old saloon the ruined and dejected longmore was occupying a poor house in a poor street of his native town that town where he had so long lived in honour and esteem a single maid servant waited at that melancholy table at which sat down in gloomy silence longmore his wife and daughter his numerous friends where were they longmore answered that question in his heart with a dreary curse his wife with a trembling frame, and his daughter with a few silent tears. The fallen man now confessed that the philosophers of all ages were the truly wise men, that he had been the fool. Experience had set its seal afresh to the ancient melancholy truth. Between that wretched Christmas and the one following, Longmore had been employed in attempting to reconstruct a refuge from absolute indigence, from the fragments of his former trade. There had been but one sole creature out of his own house who had stood firmly by him and believed him still to be a just and cruelly used man. That was his widowed sister Mrs Ranford at Blant Farm, about fourteen miles from the town. She had provided him a moderate capital and he commenced in small premises. His former ample ones still stood empty, but they were far too great for his present means laboring as he did under a ponderous load of public prejudice and under the still more disqualifying condition of his own mind for his whole intellectual tone was changed he looked on his fellow men as destitute of truth and real virtue he saw in them only selfish and malignant dissemblers his soul was full of darkness and gall he cared not to live but he submitted to it as a necessity his misfortunes had prostrated the never strong frame of his wife the wreck of his once manly, generous, and buoyant hearted disposition had prostrated it far more. His daughter wept bitterly and daily over the evidences of the frightful change which had taken place in him. All those impulses which had formerly been for good were now perverted into impulses of deadly wrath and deep contempt of his race. He plodded on in his business with an unconquerable spirit, but with indifferent success for there was scarcely a person with whom he had formerly dealt, who did not regard him as a justly fallen man, and whom he did not regard as false and heartless. But already Providence was silently moving round that great system of the universe which brings truth invariably to the daylight. When Longmore learned that the final decision was given against him, he drove away from Longmore Park, accompanied by his wife, in precipitate haste, He was too proud to allow the emissaries of Broadhurst to eject him from the spot like a homeless dog, but Mary Longmore, the daughter, stayed behind to pack up many little things which she could not bear the idea of leaving to the unhallowed hands of the butcher-filmer. She had scarcely completed her task and sent off the packages, when she appeared likely to encounter the occurrence which her father had shrunk from. A carriage drew up to the door, out of which she saw a number of men issue, and one was announced immediately as desiring to speak with her a young man, of handsome person and with a frank and gentlemanly air, presented himself respectfully, apologising for the cause which brought him there. "'You are Mr Broadhurst's clerk,' said Miss Longmore, somewhat astonished at the young man's appearance and bearing. "'I am his son, madam,' he replied, again bowing. "'I am sorry for it,' replied Miss Longmore, bearing up as bravely as she could against her overpowering sensations. "'I wish you had an honester business here.' Madam, replied the young man, with a mixture of mildness and yet of spirit, as vindicating his father. I am well aware how this matter must appear to you, and deplore it sincerely, but we believe our business to be quite proper. He reminded her of the decisive nature of the housekeeper's testimony, and begged that they might no farther pursue the painful subject. Miss Longmore, with the tears starting into her eyes, declared that God must one day expose her awful perjury. It is quite natural you should think so, added the young man feelingly. It is quite natural, replies Miss Longmore, because all the facts of the case have been familiar to me from childhood. What should there be so strange to a friend who owed his life and fortune to my father leaving that fortune to him? Life and fortune, said the young man. What is that? Of that there was no mention on the trial. There was mention, replied Miss Longmore, but the fact was borne down by ridicule. If you wish to hear the truth, hear it now then. When my father was a very young man, happening to be in Calais, He saw a young gentleman, who he perceived at once to be an Englishman, surrounded by a low crowd with whom he was in contention. They attempted to drag the young gentleman away, but he manfully resisted. My father, with his usual impulsiveness, immediately placed himself beside his countrymen, and demanded that the infuriated crowd should hear reason and show fair play. But they were deaf to this, and without knowing the ground of the quarrel, my father exhorted the young man to unite with him in driving off the throng. At once they placed themselves with their backs against a wall and in a boxing attitude, and struck some effective blows against their adversaries. All foreigners have a horror of the pugilistic powers of Englishmen. After no very short fight, the crowd took to flight, and my father was about to march off in triumph, his unknown companion, when a posse of gendarmes surrounded them and compelled them to the presence of a magistrate. Here, when their names had been demanded and proved by the passports at their respective inns to be correct, the case was heard. And as the people who had been in the fray represented the assault to have commenced with the Englishman, my father and the stranger, for whose sake he had entered this dispute, were ordered a month's imprisonment in a place of confinement seven miles distant, and they were accordingly marched away, handcuffed together, between two gendarmes. The day was already declining when they set out, and it bade fair to be night before they reached their destination. As they proceeded, they took care to ascertain whether their guides understood English they found that they certainly did not. The young gentleman in whose cause my father was thus suffering was Mr Churton. He lamented bitterly this chance, and declared that it would be his utter ruin, for that a trial regarding an estate, this very estate, must come on in the meantime, and his absence would be the assured loss of his cause, and leave him a penniless man. My father, with that reckless impetuosity which has ultimately been so fatal to him, declared at once that they would attempt a rescue. He knew if they failed that it would be death to them, but this did not weigh a moment with him. Mr Churton agreed, and on arriving at a solitary place where four roads met in the woods, just as it was growing dark, my father and Mr Churton suddenly enclosed each his man with his free arm and brought them face to face between them. The gendarme had loaded carbines at their side, but these, by the sudden movement, became useless and the two powerful young Englishmen declared that if the gendarmes made any outcry or resistance, they would at once strangle them. The men who were of inferior strength were so convinced of their power to carry their threat into effect that they gave up the key of the fetters at their demand. My father compelled one of them to unlock the fetters from the wrists of himself and companion, took the carbines from the gendarmes, threw them into the ditch full of water by the roadside, And then, binding the two gendarmes back to back with their own fetters, and securing their legs with their handkerchiefs, they left them standing in the middle of the road, assuring them that if they made any outcry, they would return and shoot them. They then made the best of their way to the neighbouring coast. It was already dark when they arrived there, but hearing a boat not far from the strand, they shouted and received an answer in English. They soon found that the vessel was an English fishing boat, and explaining their case, begged to be taken on board but the fishermen declared that they had no dinghy or small boat with them, and if they came aboard they must wade or swim. Churton could not swim, but destruction was behind them. My father was an admirable swimmer, and a very powerful man. He encouraged Churton to make the attempt. They waded into the dark waters, but long before they could reach the boats, they were beyond their depth. The fishermen protested that they dared not come a yard nearer on account of rocks. There was nothing else for it. My father flung off his coat, Bade Churton hold fast by his waistcoat collar behind, and struck out for the vessel. It was a case of life and death. If Churton lost his presence of mind, and flung his arms round my father, or if my father's strength failed him, they were both inevitably lost. But Churton preserved his coolness, and by desperate effort my father reached the side of the boat, and both were safely drawn on board. There, furnished with additional clothes to defend them from the cold, and with homely fare, the two young men remained for two days and nights with the fisherman, ere they put across to Dover. But there at length they landed, and paid the fisherman handsomely. Churton was in time for his trial, won it, and from that day his life long was my father's friend. Sir, continued Miss Longmore, it is well known that Mr. Churton was a shy and solitary man, but his intellects were as good as yours or mine. He never married, and always declared that in any case of his prior decease, Would leave my father his property, by whom it had been saved for him. There was no scheme, no force used. I have found within these days abundant evidence in Mr. Churton's letters, through many years to my father, both of his clear understanding and of his unvarying resolve to make my father his heir. Good heavens! exclaimed the young lawyer. Why were not these letters brought forward? I have told you, sir, replied Miss Longmore, blushing, that these facts were mentioned by my father's counsel. "'but the whole thing was so cleverly ridiculed by the opposite counsel, "'as a pretty sentimental romance "'that my father, very much in opposition to his advocate, "'insisted on this part of the evidence being abandoned "'and on the counsel taking his stand on the clear integrity of the will. "'These letters, if they are what you say, madam,' rejoined the young lawyer, "'would prove the case beyond everything else.' "'I have always thought so,' said Miss Longmore.' but my father became so exasperated that he hardly knew what he did. I would give anything to see these letters, said young Mr. Broadhurst. I would not have such a lie at my father's door for the world. If those letters are as you describe them, would you allow my father to see them? I mean, with every precaution for their safety. Miss Longmore paused a moment and then said, I would. Mary Longmore left the lawyer and the officers in possession of Longmore Park but she did it with a feeling of resignation which she had believed impossible. There had sprung a hope in her bosom, which, though it seemed to arise from a very minute seed, she could not prevent taking firm hold. When young Broadhurst told his father of what Miss Longmore had said, he only laughed and cried, A most romantic story, truly, and added, That's a pretty girl, Tom. Mind you don't fall in love with her now she's lost the estate. But before a month was over, Tom had prevailed on his father to meet Miss Longmore at a friend's house in Boston, and in the presence of the lady of the house, he was permitted to read the numerous letters of the late John Churton. From that hour, Mr Broadhurst was an altered man. He saw that a huge wrong had been done. A noble-minded man and true had been cruelly hunted down, shamefully maligned and ruined. With this knowledge in his possession, he made a visit to the housekeeper, whose deposition had carried the day against Longmore, and charged her so solemnly and searchingly with perjury, that she trembled in every limb, but remained steadfast to her tale. In a few months after, the news came that she was married to Filmer, the new proprietor of Longmore Park. The man was a low brute, and his marriage at the housekeeper came over the country like a flash of lightning breaking upon the darkness the motive of her evidence now stood sufficiently revealed. In less than twelve months more, Filmer's savage treatment of her and the terrors of conscience had laid her on her bed. A hasty message came from her to Mr Broadhurst. He hastened to the park, and there, in the presence of a clergyman and a neighbouring magistrate, he took down and saw her set her hand to her confession. Her evidence on the trial was false. Filmer had bribed her with money and a promise of marriage. From the moment that Broadhurst had seen the letters of the late Mr. Churton, he resolved, if it was in his power, to remedy the evil he had so zealously, but so unwittingly, done. He did not hesitate to declare openly that circumstances had now come to his knowledge which totally altered his view of the case. He sent, and candidly confessed this, to Mr. Longmore, begged him to forgive him if possible, and promised that not only his most strenuous professional exertions, but his fortune should be at his command to rectify the terrible error that he had committed. Rogue, exclaimed Longmore, he's got all he can by wresting the estate from me, and now his fingers itch for as much more in winning it back again. More inveterate than ever became his resentment against the lawyer. But When the news of the housekeeper's confession came, and Broadhurst was the first to communicate it, telling him that the case was now quite clear, and that the property might be recovered with ease, everyone expected that Longmore would forgive and forget and that all past differences would be ended by the happiness in prospect. This was the joyful feeling of Mrs Longmore and Mary. Mrs Longmore, at first overcome by the glad tidings, soon began to show symptoms of returning strength, though this return was slow in its progress. Mary seemed to breathe a new atmosphere of happiness. Life looked to her like a bright summer morning, the brighter for the last night's thunderstorm. They wanted only the restoration of her father's cheerfulness to complete her felicity, but that did not come. The mind of Longmore underwent a change, but it was not such as was universally expected. He rose from a degree of darkness and oppression, but it was not to peace and joy. He was not without exultation, but it was dashed with the spirits of indignant vengeance. The fools! The villains! he exclaimed, when anyone congratulated him on the discovery of the base plot to defraud him of his property. Don't I know it was a base plot? Did I not always know it? They knew it themselves, all those grand friends of mine. They knew me. They had known me for forty years. Was I likely all at once to become a scamp and a cheat? Do honourable men become devils all at once? Was I likely to cajole or compel anyone into a false will? Let the whole rotten hearted world go. I want none of it. They are all hollow, hollow as drums, and false and mean as death and sin. It was thus that Longmore no felt and reasoned but the property was not recovered. Though two months had passed since the confession of the housekeeper, Longmore had not taken a single step. He seemed to have a stern pleasure in showing the world that he did not care for it. He delighted in launching the bolts of his contempt on the whole of his species. We had seen him at church on Christmas morning, and what was the spirit of his devotions? But on New Year's Day he was going to dine at Blant Farm with his sister, Mrs Ranford. She was a true woman. She had stood firmly by him as a tower. That was a woman, he said, true as steel, genuine as God's daylight. He believed that the whole crawling, creeping, venomous herd of things called men would have been long ago swept into the Red Sea, but for the sake of one or two like her. That day, after a hearty luncheon, Mr Longmore mounted his gig and set out towards Blant Farm. Little did he know that precisely at the same moment Broadhurst of Wainfleet his gig and set out from his own door toward the same blant farm the two men had to pursue the two sides of a rectangular triangle which at the distance of about 14 miles would bring them to a point exactly at mrs ranford's gate had Longmore known that fact he would have rushed again into his own home and believed the end of the world come since sister ranford could thus deceive him but brawhurst did know it and yet he went the fact was that certain things had taken place which, for good reasons, neither Longmore nor the reader have yet been informed of. The right moment, it was thought, had not come. Young Tom Broadhurst had been so much struck with Mary Longmore in his interview at the park that from that moment he felt a wonderful persuasion that there had been some gross mistake in the whole business. He was sure that the truth and goodness beamed as clearly out of those mild blue eyes and from those handsome amiable features Light from the sun. Logmore could not be a very great road to have such a daughter. And Mary thought Broadhurst could not be a very great one to have such a son. What a fine, frank fellow he seems, she said to herself. How willing he seems to believe the truth. What a beautiful earnestness in seeking it out. In fact, there was a case such as lawyers seldom get upon their books a case of love at first sight. It was a case clear, positive, and most particular. Romeo and Juliet themselves never stood so suddenly enchanted between the hostile hosts of their two fiery houses. Tom Broadhurst let no grass grow under his feet. He soon had his father on the right track. Mary and he met how many times? Well, it really is amazing how many times they found it necessary to see each other in the course of a very few weeks to put things in train. Mrs Ranford was soon taken into the secret, and with her clear, strong mind, took in the whole thing, the love affair and all, heartily. Mary passed a deal of time at Blunt Farm, and Tom Broadhurst rode over there continually. It was quite necessary. But as to that love affair, neither Longmore nor Broadhurst were suffered to know a word of it. Tom said he would not for the world that his father should be suspected of having any interest in doing justice to Mr Longmore, for the justice itself. And as to Longmore knowing, why? They might just as well think of blowing out the gasworks and all the steam engines in Boston and Waynefleet. Then, indeed, Longmore would declare Broadhurst a rogue, who was for anything for his own interest. But Mrs Ranford was resolved on an explanation, and therefore she planned the bringing together her brother and Mr Broadhurst at her New Year's Day dinner. It was a daring project. It struck even Mary and Tom Broadhurst with unutterable dismay. Mrs. Longmore, who was in the secret, was terrified beyond conception. It had actually thrown her into a serious relapse. But Mrs. Ranford was a woman of bold spirits and decisive will. She determined that the experiment should be made. Mrs. Ranford resembled her brother greatly in person. She was a tall, large, florid and very comely woman, and ten years younger. Her husband had been dead some years, and Mrs. Ranford had had numbers of most advantageous offers. But no, she declared, that she was married to her dear Ned, he was only gone on the journey that she should take after him someday. She would not have two husbands. Mrs. Ramford was a first-rate farmer. Her house stood on the top of that step of the country that runs on through Lincoln, and looked far and wide over the flats below. It was a good farmhouse, with a flower garden and with outbuildings and stock that showed her management and science. She led a life very much to her taste, and ruled very much in her own way, and was resolved now to try her power over her brother. It was time to put an end to all this heart-burning and misunderstanding, she said. There had been enough of it. Longmore drove that afternoon over those immense flats that lie between Boston and Blunt Farm. The air was clear and very keen. The whole country was one level sheet of whiteness, only here and there broken by a long line of stunted willows. One of those funny little windmills that had set by the sluggish dykes to propel the water. A solitary willow surrounded farm with an occasional round haystack "'eaten out by the cattle in the shape of a huge mushroom "'or a dreary stretch of black fir trees far away in the distance. "'It was little more than four o'clock "'when Longmore was ascending the steep hill to Blant Farm, "'but it was already dark. "'Piercing cold and some fine flakes of snow made him say to himself, "'We shall have another downfall!' "'Mrs Ranford's dinner was not till six o'clock, "'but she had begged her brother to be there early, "'both on account of the short days "'and because she wanted some talk with him. It was to be a family party, with the exception of Broadhurst and his son, and the clergyman and his wife, to whom Mrs Ranford had imparted her scheme and implored the vicar's aid in the crisis. Longmore, on entering the house, met his sister in the hall, and they embraced each other affectionately. Mary, who had been there some days, remained in the drawing-room, for she was too much terrified to venture out. Mrs Ranford, having seen her brother relieved of his coat and wrappers, opened the drawing-room door and purposely allowed him to go in first. Scarcely did he, however, set his foot in the room than he turned around and, with a fierce, low outburst of, The devil! he plunged past Mrs. Ramford in the direction of the hooks on which she hung his hat and coat. Mrs. Ramford had probably expected something of the kind, but she suddenly imposed her large, calm person in his way, and, as he gave her a terrible look, saying, You, sister, you! she seized him by both arms and said, Brother, brother, show yourself a man and a Christian. There are things to tell you that will set everything right. At the same moment, Mary rushed from the room, clasped his knees and cried in agonised tones, Oh, father, father! But Longmore had, by this time, grasped his hat with one hand, thrust it upon his head, snatched his greatcoat with the other, had given himself a furious shake loose and dashed out of the door. The scene he left behind was awful. Mary Longmore had sunk down on the floor where her father had left her, and was weeping convulsively. Mrs. Ranford was exclaiming, "'What a madman! What a fury!' But he shall be brought to reason. Tom Broadhurst stood over Mary, whispering to her something which only seemed to increase, if either, the violence of her grief, and Mr. Broadhurst almost wept. "'Stop him, Mrs. Ranford! Send after him! I won't stand in his way! I will retire to the inn!' And with that, Mr. Broadhurst also snatched his hat and rushed out. "'What a New Year's dinner party!' What an upshot of the experiment. Mrs Ranford did not send after her brother. She knew very well she might just as rationally send for Lincoln Winster. But she set about to comfort Mary, telling her never to fear. All should be right yet. Her father's proud spirit should be made to bend. It was a miserable scene. Meantime, Longmore had hastened into the stable yard, where his horse was not yet got out of his harness. Made the man put him in again in desperate speed. Jumped into the gig and drove off. The snow was now falling in masses. A keen east wind drove into his face and bosom. It was pitch dark, and neither man nor horse could tell which was road and which was not. But the storm within Longmore's breast raged far more fiercely than it did without. He lashed his horse and whirled on. But even the horse began to slacken, in spite of the whip, and betrayed unmistakable symptoms of uncertainty and reluctance to proceed. Longmore gave him some unmerciful cuts which for a while sent him forward at a good rate. But again the poor horse stopped, and in response to the whip only reared, wheeled aside and refused to go. None but a madman would attempt such a road on such a night. The horse evidently thought so, and therefore stood stock still, in spite of the murderous inflictions of Longmore's whip. At length Longmore saw that it was no use to urge him. "'Fool!' he exclaimed, gave the rein a pull to the left and the poor animal, joyfully obeying the hint, turned and proceeded at a rapid rate towards the farm. He would have stopped at Mrs Ramford's gate, but again Longmore applied the whip, and the gig rolled expeditiously on to the village inn. Here Longmore flung the reins on the horse's neck and stalked into the house. There was a considerable crowd of labourers drinking and smoking in the common room, who, as well as the landlady, stared to see him enter. Put up my horse, he said, and was proceeding to the parlour. ''I beg your pardon, sir,'' said the landlady. ''But that room is engaged.'' ''Show me another, then,'' said Longmore. The lady opened another door, saying, ''But there is no fire, sir.'' ''Then make one,'' said Longmore gruffly, and entering flung himself on the sofa in his snow-covered clothes and hat. The landlady quickly brought a light and attempted to light the fuel already in the grate, but the sticks were damp, they refused to kindle, and the poor woman hastily clearing out the grate, brought forth wood and live coal from the kitchen. In vain, the chimney was damp, the smoke drove down and filled the room. Longmore bade her angrily let the fire alone and go. She made her exit in evident alarm. Longmore sat gloomily on the sofa. The room was deathly cold. The smoke filled his eyes and lungs with its sharp, suffocating vapour. He looked round and wished himself dead. But Something now caught his attention. The room was only divided from the next by a thin wooden partition. The landlord was holding a garrulous talk with some guest there, and every word he uttered was as audible as if in the room itself. Longmore started. He heard his own name. Yes, there it was again. So he's likely, I hear, to get the property back again. They say the old woman is peached, but I know not. If she was bought one way, she may be bought another, and Longmore is a determined man. Silence, said another voice. It was no other than that of Broadhurst. Longmore trembled with excitement at the sound. "'Silence,' said Broadhurst. "'I cannot allow you to say a word against Mr. Longmore, I tell you, and I, if any man should know. He has been foully injured and misrepresented. It was all a mistake, and that bad woman clenched it. No, Longmore, and I beg you will everywhere say so from me. Longmore, from what I have lately learned, is as noble, true-hearted a man as ever lived. Sir, I would give my right hand to do him justice.' And justice, if there is a God in heaven, he will yet have done to him. <laughs> Lord a mercy! exclaimed the landlord. Do you say so? Yes, I say so, replied Broadhurst. Till justice is done to that man, the load of a mountain lies on my heart. Longmore turned deadly pale as he heard these words. He sunk down again upon the sofa, once he had started on hearing these voices, laid his head on the table and seemed shaken by some terrible convulsion. In another minute he rose up, still pale but with an eager look, passed out of the room, entered that where Broadhurst was, and putting out his hand the astonished lawyer said, I heard what you said, I believe you. The lawyer, still more astonished and looking as if an apparition had suddenly stood before him, he had clutched at the offered hand, and seemed to groan out rather than speak, Almighty oh, God be thanked and the two desperate foes stood thus till a gush of tears appeared on Broadhurst's face. "'Now, gods, be praised! All is right!' Broadhurst again ejaculated. "'Yes, all is right,' repeated Longmore. "'You must dine with me,' said Broadhurst. "'Good God, what have I not to say to you?' "'Nay,' said Longmore. "'We must not dine here. "'Think how we left them at my sister's. "'We must go there at once.' "'Right, right,' said Broadhurst. "'The next moment the astonished people in the kitchen saw these two men,' who for years had been engaged in such a deadly strife, going arm in arm, swiftly, out of the house. What the state of affairs was at Mrs Ranford's may well be imagined. Mary was overwhelmed with the most vehement grief. Tom Broadhurst stood over her, holding her hand, and every now and then bidding her to be comforted. All would go well yet, all the time looking himself a picture of despair. Mrs Ranford, after marching to and fro in great agitation and abusing her brother heartily, as the most obstinate of animals had sat down moodily in her easy chair by the fire and seemed more in a state of deep anger than of sorrow. Her scheme had failed signally as everyone had told her it would. She had, to all appearances, aggravated affairs dreadfully. She was too much mortified to be really sorry. The clergyman and his wife came in. They saw at a glance what had happened. A few indignant words from Mrs Ranford and Mary's tears taught everything. There fell a deep and blank silence on the party. What a New Year's dinner party. Never was there such a wretched scene of utter desolation. In the midst of it came a violent ring at the bell. All started. Mary Longmore gave a shriek and stood trembling with clasped hands and death-like face. Something dreadful has happened to that wilful man. Exclaimed Mrs. Rankford, going impetuously towards the door. At that moment the door opened, and Longmore and Broadhurst entered together. Before any of them could recover from their astonishment, Longmore said, 'It is all right!' and caught his sister in his arms and embraced and kissed her outrageously. Then he caught his daughter to his heart, who, at those words, flew to him and embraced and kissed her still more outrageously. Then he shook hands with Tom Broadhurst and the clergyman, both together and they shook his hands, and he shook theirs again, and then he would most likely have kissed the clergyman's lady, only she and Mrs Ranford were most passionately kissing and crying at one another at the very time. Never was there such a hearty, cordial, general reconciliation and felicitation. Longmore seemed at one effort to have flung off all his gall and misanthropy. In the midst of their joy they seemed to forget the other great event of their meeting, the dinner, the hour was long past. Nobody before had had any inclination to eat from sorrow now they had forgotten it for joy but at length up came the turkey up came the roast beef up came the game the plum pudding and all the tarts mince pies and knick-knackeries and what a dinner was there after all how triumphant mrs ranford looked her generalship had succeeded after all how bright mary looked how pleased tom and his father looked and as for mr longmore he never seemed so large so florid so jovial All his old jollity and grandeur of good-heartedness seemed to come back again all at once. Every wondered as they came to look at each other and smile at each other and talk to each other how in the world it was possible that people so excellent as they were and so made for each other's society could have made such a dismal blunder as they had. Mary observed with a quiet smile that Oliver Goldsmith had explained it all long ago. How so? asked her father, astonished. How could he, when he did not know us? Well, said Mary, he must have known us, or people exactly like us. For he said that all this sort of thing came of people not knowing one another. God bless us, said Longmore, looking quite astonished. How precisely true that is! Let us drink to Oliver's immortal memory. With all our hearts, was echoed from all sides of the table. And add God bless us to it, said the clergyman. Bravo, said Broadhurst. Oliver Goldsmith and God bless us. The toast was drank amid a strange accompaniment of smiles and tears. The rest of our story is short. Everyone may imagine it. The speedy recovery of Longmore Park, the repurchase of the ample old wool warehouses, for Longmore would rebuild all his old trade again and make his rounds amongst his old former friends again, the marriage of Tom and Mary, and a score of other good things which all sprung up from the happy change begun by Christmas and completed by Mrs Ranford's New Year's dinner. i hope you enjoyed that and i just want to wish everybody a very happy new year and we will hopefully get back on track with our regular scheduled programming this year we have some exciting things planned so yeah i'm looking forward to it i hope you are too thank you for listening Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us. To donate, all of the music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons attribution licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band.